there's this almost underlying narrative that there is no point to doing something creative unless a million people are watching it, consuming it, or buying it. And that's really sad. Like we are missing out on so many potentially good things because often what you create in private and what you do for your own sake actually plants the seeds for your most resonant and impactful public work. Welcome to the Art of Humanity. I'm your host, Jessica Ann. This is my podcast where you can listen for fresh perspectives with artists, leaders, authors, and your favorite entrepreneurs. You can explore creativity and consciousness, evolve your business with the Art of Humanity. Now, here's this week's episode. Hi, I'm Jessica Ann. Thank you for listening to the Art of Humanity podcast, where we explore creativity and consciousness with artists, leaders, authors, and entrepreneurs. This is episode 33, and I received such great feedback from last week's episode with Bob Lefsetz. I always appreciate your comments. I received this positive review from Thane on the Bob Lefsetz episode. He writes, Bob really cuts through the illusions and helps listeners understand the value in perseverance. I can relate to his inspiration to write and how it simply arrives to him throughout the day. I call it musing, something that I'd consider a gift that's been present since childhood, speaking for myself. It's actually something I've never really fully taken credit for, more so an acknowledgement that I am merely the conduit through which this energy flows quite automatically. Did you know that the success of a podcast launch is driven by how it's received? Leaving a five-star review on iTunes would mean so much to me and help to gain momentum. Thanks so much for listening and taking the time to leave a review. Now, let's get to this season and this episode. This season four of The Art of Humanity focuses on empowering the next paradigm of creativity. And one of the topics I'm exploring in this podcast and in my next book is creativity and time management. Now, I'm going to dissect a topic that's of interest to a lot of my creative entrepreneur friends. Time tracking, project management, and how it influences creativity. This is a bit of an unconventional idea. But I've been really diving into this topic and have found that time tracking may seem helpful. And yes, it's the status quo for many. But, and this is a big but, it does not work if you're existing on a creative or spiritual plane. At the beginning of my business, I took so many classes on structure. I tracked every second because at the time I believed in time and the importance of tracking it. But today, I'm all about how you can time hop instead of time track. When you time hop, your creativity up levels, your confidence shines, and it doesn't matter whether you spend one minute or one day on a task. It's all about your awareness of your consciousness. If we're producing great work and helping your clients to be successful, time tracking adds an unnecessary layer of administrative overhead that just doesn't add much value to the creative process. And in fact, it hurts because the focus is about control, which is in direct opposition to the creative process or flow state. If you're in the mindset of logging every activity you're doing, you're actually hurting your productivity. That touch-in, touch-out mentality is very different from the mentality you need to enter the flow state to do creative work or even do research. What matters more than the length of time you put into a thing is actually the intensity of focus. Because if you have an intensity of focus, you can actually reduce the amount of time spent doing it to get the same or better results. Time tracking is one of those activities that seems like basic business essentials, but I found that it's really possible to function and even thrive without it. On paper, it kind of sort of makes sense to come up with an hourly rate, count the number of hours, and do simple math. After all, isn't that how everyone does it? Not so much. Here's why. There's a lot of subtle work that goes on outside of the physical tasks that make a big difference in our offerings. It's not about time. It's about the value of the exchange. While intuitively this may make sense, time tracking is still the status quo in the business world. 
but the subtle energetic of service business is something that very few people are talking about. If you Google this, you'll see so many answers around how time tracking prevents procrastination. This is only relevant if you're hiring employees who are living in a scarcity mindset, mostly geared towards people who aren't awake or aware of their consciousness. This means fitting certain tasks into a specific duration. Anyone who is conscious is operating at a different vibration. They're living in space-time versus time-space. Now, let me be clear that this is not New Age philosophy, even though it may sound like it. When we align with our value, instead of keeping track of the number of hours worked, we can operate in a different frequency and work more gracefully. For example, I'm now able to tune into the frequency of broadcasting this podcast. Do you as a listener care how many hours I spent researching my guest, reading his book, and diving deep into this topic? Probably not. The time spent is my life's work in the world. And all of this information is synthesized for you, my listener. I know myself in a new way when I share this information with you, and I see the world before me in a new framework, which in turn allows you to tune into a new way of working and expressing yourself. I'm free to live my authentic truth every day. I don't need validation from outside of me. The old paradigm needs you to convince others that you're working hard and with hustle mode on, but this couldn't be further from the truth. There's this concept of an energetic container. And when we enter these agreements with clients, we're entering their energy field. We're diving deeper into their work. And there's a lot that happens energetically between the times that we're actually doing the work. What I've found is that creativity is an attendance to truth. Creativity is free and limitless to all who are tuned into the vibration of being in service through your work in the world. You're aligned to your own freedom of choice. And isn't your worth and freedom more important than any time? The bag of tricks and time tracking was collected in fear, collected as a necessity, as a way to defend, as a way to achieve, as a way to feel quote unquote perceived one way or another. You are not your time. You are not your stuff. This former paradigm allowed us to get by, but it's not a heartful way to live or thrive. As I explore this topic further through experiences, I'm realizing that contrast is key. In order to time hop, you need to first know how to time track and feel into both of the spectrums. Time tracking fits into a worldview that's not necessarily accurate. You are who you say you are. And when you limit your creativity to mere hours, you're putting yourself in a box. We're waking up. And this creates a new opening to align to your next level of your evolutionary process. It's a revolution of spirit and it holds no judgment or fear. We need to attend to this cosmic level of vibration. The spiritual plane does not adhere to the physical law of tasks. And in order to evolve, you need to let go of who you think you are. You need to dismantle the old paradigm and live beyond the constraints of time. My guest today is someone who has found a way to do this and he has a lot of wisdom to share. His name is Srini Rao, and he's the host and founder of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where he's conducted over 600 interviews with thought leaders and people from all walks of life. He's the author of three books, the Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Art of Being Unmistakable, Unmistakable, Why Only is Better Than Best, and his most recent book, An Audience of One, Reclaiming Creativity for Its Own Sake. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Forbes, Inc., Business Insider, and The Blaze. Srini, thank you so much for joining me on The Art of Humanity. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So before we get into the work that you do, I just want to dive a little bit deeper into your upbringing, which Mm -hmm. I feel is such a simple question, but it's so revealing. 
You grew up in a very traditional upbringing with a family full of doctors and lawyers, yet you have one of the most unconventional lifestyles and businesses that I know about, besides from, you know, drugs and sex and all that other crazy (laughs) stuff. (laughs) Um, What did your parents do for a living that led you to what you do today? Actually, you know, it's funny to to look at it now and to think about the influences that they had. So my dad uh, is a college professor at the University of California, Riverside, and my mom is a health worker for Riverside County. But you have to go back before all of this uh, because, you know, my parents are immigrants, as you probably have gathered from my name, and they left India in 1978. And my dad left India to go do a PhD in Australia, uh, and he left actually before I was born. So my dad wasn't there when I was born. And four months later, my mom joined him. So the sort of academic thread has always been deeply sort of embedded into my life. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because... My dad went from doing a PhD, then he spent about 13 years doing postdoctoral work, and he had actually thought about applying for jobs at companies or going into you know businesses. But the thing is, when you're an academic and you're a scientist, for the most part, when your research stops generating money for the company, you get laid off. And that's just innovation. That's kind of how it works in the fields that he was in, particularly in like you know sciences and bio. And you know, given that he had a science background, he wasn't going to be you know headed towards like director or upper you know management of any sort. So he resisted the temptation to go to the industry as opposed to staying in academia because of the fact that, you know, his bosses told him, he said, you know, if you go to industry, um, it's going to be rough on your family. You're going to be moving all the time. And we were already been moving all the time, at least as far as I was concerned, because I didn't really settle into a place until I was a sophomore in high school. I think by the time I started ninth grade, I had been to, well, I had lived in Australia, Canada, and Texas, and I went to elementary school in Texas from kindergarten through third grade. And then while we were in Texas, I think I went to a different school every year that we were in Texas, but that's only because uh, of the way the school was. It it was a small Texas town, so it makes no sense that that was the case, but First, I went to one elementary school. Then we moved, so I ended up at another elementary school. They had a separate school for fifth grade. Then they sent us to another school for sixth grade, and then they sent us to another school for seventh grade. The year that I became an eighth grader, they combined sixth, seventh, and eighth into uh, three different schools. But you know, that was the first time I wasn't, you know, uh, like. And then finally, ninth grade, I actually went back to the school that I was in at fifth grade because the high school was too small to house so many students. So. I spent a lot of time moving from school to school uh, really early on, but my dad being an academic, I think, instilled in me uh, probably more than anything, discipline. Uh, I mean, and I don't think that's just the byproduct of him being an academic. It's largely the byproduct of the culture I grew up in. You talk to Indian people, you mentioned doctors. I don't know. I'm not sure if we have lawyers. I'm sure we do, but mainly it's doctors and engineers. And the thing that you know, you look at it now. I mean, of course, you know, when you're a kid, you're just like, this is so annoying. Why do you insist that, you know, we study all the time? You know, it, the, the stupidest things we would hear were like, if somebody would say, well, I'm, if you said I'm bored, somebody, older person would be like, well, go do some math. I'm like, who the hell tells their kid to go do some math? <laughs> uh, but the thing that I think, you know, from both my parents came was this, this sort of discipline. My mom was actually an English major in college, although she never did anything with that degree. Uh, but she, you know, worked at medical clinics. She worked as as a medical assistant. Uh, she worked for dentists. Now she's a health worker for Riverside County. And 
what's funny is that the notion of becoming a doctor was something that was drilled into my head very, very early on, probably as early as fourth grade. And the only reason that I wanted to be become a doctor uh, was, I remember we went to this town called Temple, Texas, which is a big sort of healthcare hub, and they had some friends there. And there were a lot of Indian doctors in Temple, and they all lived in really nice houses, and they all drove really nice cars. And so to me, I thought, all right, well, if that's what you get for becoming a doctor, sounds like a good plan to me. <laughs> uh, you know. And, and of course, in addition to that, it also was this thing that was revered and respected. And my, my sister also happens to be a doctor. Uh, I think what happened, though, for me was that probably the biggest influence was music more than anything else. And we can talk about that in a bit of, bit more detail. But it was becoming very clear to me at some point that something was changing my mind about becoming a doctor. I didn't like the idea of being in school for that long. I actually looked at it and I said, you know, yeah, okay, that's a lot of money, but that's, you know, a limited income potential, as ridiculous as that sounds right now. Mm -hmm. Uh but all of that just kind of didn't appeal to me. But from each parent, I think that uh, because of my dad being ac academic and being a scientist, I think really, you know, I, I don't think I'd connected this dot until now, but probably the sort of innate curiosity to try and try and try and experiment probably comes from the fact that my dad is a scientist and, you know, scientists have a very different relationship to failure and to adversity in that everything is just an experiment and everything else, everything they get back from it is just data. Um, it's not a reflection on their value as a human being per se. Mm -hmm. And my mom, uh, had you know, I look at this now and I realize it actually had a big impact. My mom read to me when I was a kid, and it was really funny. I was in the studio recording the audiobook, and they were doing outtakes, and they'd asked me, you know, one of the stories about audiobooks, and I said, you know, it's funny. My mom, when I was a kid, uh, she would read to me, and then she tried to like pull a bait and switch on me, and she tried to tape herself reading the book, and I wasn't having any of it. I was like, <laughs> no, you need to read it to me. Fortunately, my readers aren't asking me to do that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so those are sort of early influences that, you know, in terms of what my parents did for a living, I think, you know, the basically the fact that my dad worked as hard as he did uh, taught me a lot about discipline. I just saw it, and they instilled a sort of consistency in both me and my sister of, it, like, you know, nobody put our report cards in the fridge when we got straight A's. It was just kind of assumed that you would get good grades. Uh, so we learned how to be diligent. We learned how to be organized and we learned how to structure our lives based on that. Now, as far as why I end up doing something wildly different than anybody in my family, that is largely because uh, I was really miserable at almost everything I tried for probably the first 10 to 15 years of my career. I got fired from most of my jobs. Uh, working in software, you know, sales at various different companies, at, at sales in a market research company, and I at that after about probably seven years or so, I thought, you know, this isn't working. I'm going to go back to business school, and of course, I went to business school in the worst possible time you could go there between 2007 and 2009. And 2009 was an awful time to get out of school. It was a really hard time to start a career. But I think that in, in so many ways, that was when the seeds started getting planted, at least bigger ones. But, you know, it's funny because you've read the book and we can talk about this, but there was always this thread of expressing my creativity and this just innate desire to make something, uh, my first sort of question anytime I saw a new piece of technology, and it's still the same this day, like when I go through, you know, product hunt every few days and I look, 
my first instinct is to look at the tools, see what's there, and then say, okay, based on this tool, what can I make that I couldn't make before? And a question you know, that was posed to me uh, by Julian Smith that I think is worthwhile for your listeners to really consider is every time that we have new technology that basically comes on the map or becomes accessible to us, it makes a fundamental change in society. And the question that always has to raise is what's possible now that wasn't possible before? In 1997, 1998, 1999, 2000, uh, you know, before we had blogs, before we had online publishing, uh, what wasn't possible was this notion of being able to put your ideas out into the world and share them with people. It just you needed thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours to even build something like a simple website. And one of my friends actually built something close to a blog where we would literally email in our entries and he would post them for us. So you know, you fast forward to probably 2007, 2008, what suddenly has happened is the gap between creativity and technology is narrower than it's ever been. And in the last 10 years, it's become even narrower. And we're moving to this point where that gap is going to be virtually non-existent. And the cost of starting something, trying something and experimenting is moving closer and closer to zero. So that's a, a sort of ridiculously long answer to your question. You learn self-awareness from a super young age. Um, and you almost had a creative process going on back then, even if you didn't know how to execute on it. You were kind of experimenting, and, and as you went as a young kid, and you were failing a lot as a young kid. Um, you know, you, you mentioned you got fired as well um, from a lot of jobs, and you kind of were miserable. But you used that, you kind of were testing that and experimenting as you went. So, how, how do you think that learning and failing and, and iterating and stuff and, and basing all of these experiences can help our listeners, anyone that's out there listening who may be going through a crisis or a failure or getting fired, you know, how can we see that as really added value in our lives instead of thinking that life is over? Okay. So I think that first we have to be able to accept the fact that this situation is shitty, right? Getting fired sucks. I don't care, you know, how the thing is very rarely in the moment can we say that these things feel good or that something good will come from them? It's often only in retrospect that we tend to see the benefits or we tend to basically get the value from them. So I think it's important that we acknowledge that if somebody is going through a lot of pain, it's unfair of us to basically try to sugarcoat it and say, oh, you know, it'll be okay. Something great will come from this because you know what, when they're going through it, it's the worst thing in the world because they're completely consumed by it. And so we need to acknowledge that. I think it's only fair that we do that. Now, that being said, um, I think that you you kind of look at situations like this and you say, okay, your choice in this moment or after you've kind of processed it is to decide, uh, am I going to be informed by this experience or am I going to be defined by it? Now, if you're defined by it, Basically, what you do is you carry your past into your future and your future starts to look a whole hell of a lot like your past, right? And we all have baggage, whether that's from our childhood, whether that's from the, the jobs that we've had, whether that's from you know the bullshit that we've dealt with, toxic relationships, whatever it might be. But the thing is that when we let our future be defined by our past, all we're doing is we're taking that baggage and we're putting it in um, – basically what we're doing is we're putting it in the future. And as a result, the future looks almost exactly like the past and we're liable to keep repeating mistakes. So I think that that decision of, am I going to let this inform me or am I going to let this define me? Are, are, those are your really critical choices. Now, if you do let it inform you, remember there are lessons to be learned from all of these experiences. So I got fired from my first job out of college and 
the thing is that getting fired from that job, it forced me to look at what I didn't like about that job, why I got fired, and how I could make a different choice the next time I had a job. One of the things that was awful about that job is that the guy I worked for, the, the CEO, was toxic. I mean, he fired three people every month. It was like a, he was on a rampage. And I knew that that kind of working environment was not conducive to a good and healthy life. And eventually, the board removed him as the CEO, which validated my thesis that the problem in that situation wasn't necessarily me. Now, don't get me wrong. Could I have had more finesse in how I went about doing that job? Yeah. I was a 20-something hot-headed kid who didn't think twice about what he said, and eventually it caught up with me. Uh, that being said, you know, after that, I was able to say, okay, you know what? These are the things I learned from this. These are the things I'm going to apply the next time I apply for a job. And I, I think the same thing goes in our relationships, right? So you have a relationship that doesn't work. And the thing that happens so often when we fail at something or when something doesn't go according to plan or when it doesn't meet our expectations is that whatever happens becomes a part of our identity rather than a circumstance. It becomes permanent rather than temporary. You know, I, I had a, an old mentor used to say, you know, your temporary circumstances don't have to become your permanent identity. And yet so many people do that. And when they do, it limits them. So if you say, okay, based on this one relationship, I'm going to make this assumption that is going to protect me and keep me from getting close to anybody else. Well, guess what? Now that one circumstance has turned into a permanent identity. And the same thing applies in jobs. It applies in everything that we're going through. You know, and you can look at this in bigger, small ways when you look at it in the creative process. So, you know, you publish something, somebody doesn't like it. Guess what? You know, there's no, there's no real cost to doing that. The cost is really just in your head. But so often we tend to see judgments of any kind as a reflection of our value as human beings. And as a result, we diminish our self-worth. We feel insufficient. And we become incredibly unhappy and unfulfilled. Mm, great point. And you talk about judgment in your new book, An Audience yeah. of One. Um, you write, once you give up your fear of judgment, your ability to work changes quite drastically. You become more present, productive, and start to gather creative momentum. You focus on the process, not the prize, and you start to see progress towards the life you want to live. So this is so much easier said than done. You know, you say you write a Facebook post and no one likes it. You feel judged. Mm -hmm. In the age of sharing and being transparent online, as much as we try to give up our fear of judgment, it's going to happen one way or another. It does sure. get easier over time. Yeah. So I'm curious, have you ever experienced a vulnerability hangover, as Brene Brown calls it? You know, that feeling that you revealed too much about yourself. Um, and if so, what was it about and how did you get through it? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a fair question. It's a tough one too. Okay, because I had the weirdest vulnerability hangover imaginable. Uh, I wrote this self-published book, which you referenced at the beginning, a show called "The Art of Being Unmistakable." And when I started writing that book, I didn't even know I was writing a book. I was literally just composing these really long Facebook status updates. That's before people in general started writing long Facebook status updates. Nobody ever wrote status updates that long, uh, and. Yeah, at that time, it, it felt really cathartic. I, I pretty much was like, oh, I've been fired from every job I had. And suddenly now it's out there on Facebook. I was like, shit, maybe I'll never be able to get hired again uh, based on, on what I wrote. And 
so, you know, added up, you know, I felt it. And then we published the book and I was like, wow, I'm like, I've just shared this, all these really sort of personal stories. And then the book became freakishly successful. Uh, you know, like thousands of copies sold. And I was like, wow, all these people have this like deep sort of insight into my personal life. Uh, but it's funny because it's, I think it's a really fitting question given the conversations that you and I have had about how we show up online and, the fact that there is, no matter how you slice it, a difference between a person's public persona and their private persona. Um, like who my closest friends get, it's not that I'm different per se, but I'm definitely more comfortable around them than I am around the people who are my audience. You know, like I can risk saying something offensive. I can risk saying something that's super politically incorrect and they won't get mad because they're my closest friends. Like, you know, where we sort of have this unconditional acceptance of each other. So you're right. It's easier said than done uh, as far as the judgment thing goes, which I want to come back to, but as, as far as the vulnerability hangover. So I think about vulnerability when it comes to our work uh, and it's it, maybe it's Danielle Laporte who kind of uh, deserves credit for this notion. It, we have to decide that, you know, are we doing this from a place of service or are we doing this from a place of seeking attention and seeking pity? And I, this is important to me because I know I've crossed that line. Um, you know, there's a period after a breakup in which one of my mentors was like, dude, you've got to get off social media. This is a shit show. He's like, you have a public presence and you're a public figure with a large audience. He's like, this has to stop or you're going to run this business into the ground. And you know what? He was right. And so I've become very aware of how we show up and, and the difference between our, our public and our private personas is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about, especially this year. Uh, because the thing that we have to think about when it comes to sort of this notion of vulnerability and, and being judged is the fact that we're seeing everybody's lives through windows, right? You literally are seeing glimpses into people's lives. It's a bit like looking into a window of somebody's house and making up this entire story of who they are and what they're like. And, Inevitably, that story is going to be somewhat inaccurate if you you do that. Now, you know, and, and that's just the the way that the, the world we live in is. And I personally, I was just thinking about this this morning. You know, another thing that has come from this, and you know, we can kind of come back to this because I think it, it's really important that we figure out how to do more of this. I have felt unusually isolated in the last probably year or so, more than I ever have before. Part of it is, as you know. Uh, just demographics, the fact that my friends are all getting older. Uh, many of them have families and kids. A lot of my really close friends don't live in the same place that I do. And so it's weird. I, I was like, wow, how much time do we spend together in person versus, you know, digital interactions? Like when our digital interactions outweigh our in-person ones, we've reached a, a, an inflection point that really needs to be qu called into question. You know, you, you're getting high profile suicides like Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade. So, I think that you have to really keep these things in mind when we're talking about vulnerability, uh, which I, I realize I've gone off on a complete tangent here. But <laughs> the thing that you know is is really important here is that we don't necessarily assume that just because we see something that appear a certain way that we're seeing the whole story. You know, like if you look at my friend Alex recently, Alex Benayan has had this amazing book launch that has gone, you know, crazy well, right? Like USA bestseller, been on all these podcasts, you know, every day I see a Facebook update. But in between all of those Facebook updates about the book, there's one other post about the fact that his dad died. You know, like literally a year, very short, a short time ago. Kind of imagine sort of the being at the the height of your career 
and at the same time losing a parent. And uh, you know, one of the things that he told me that was most telling, which I think really kind of ties home this point, was he said, you know, people think that I am dealing with the grief of having lost my dad during a book launch. And he said, really, it's the other way around. I'm dealing with the book launch while I'm dealing, you know, yeah. in, mm, in the midst of the grief yeah. of, for my dad. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. That's heavy because it really goes to show that you really don't quite know what's going on behind the screens um, of some of your best friends who you might see only online, you know, mm-hmm. in, in this world that we live in. Um, you know, the work of, um, you know, I think you've referenced um, the work of Sherry Turkle. Yeah. Um, whenever one has time to write, edit, and delete, there's room for performance. The real me turns out to be elusive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, while I agree with that, and it sounds like you do as well based on your answer to that, um, I also believe that you can kind of shape your life according to, and not in like a fake way, but in a more sincere way, if you're like a true writer. A lot of writers are real, direct, and honest, and they spend a lot of time alone. And when you cultivate this authenticity within yourself and this this real, like, you shed through the veneer of society, um, you can almost carve out who you truly are by um, just being transparent online and posting how you really feel. Mm -hmm. And as much as this creates discomfort in the majority of society, it can also really shape the real you. How do you find the balance between being transparent and feeling like you're being the real you online versus, you know, have, wearing that veil or that facade? You know, we want to live in a world with meaning and not wear the fake facade. But at the same time, how do you really bring it back and how do you know what's truly you? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think the I think it's reflected in values more than anything else. Like why do you decide to put something out into the world? Why do you decide to make it the way that you make it? Now, the thing is that the fact that, you know, we can get attention so easily in this digital form and be validated in the forms of likes and comments and shares, that really it does something to creativity in my mind and and I, I did spend a lot of time talking about this in the book. That in my mind, you know, has a negative impact. So you've got to think about the fact that am I doing this because it's what I feel called to do? Am I doing it because, you know, I'm proud to put my signature on it? So one of the things that I think people always comment on when they listen to an episode of The Unmistakable Creative, and you'll see it in our iTunes reviews, is the fact that consistently they're discovering new people and that the lineup is always bizarre because like, where do you find all these people? And that was entirely by design. That was by design because I wanted to do things that never got boring. I wanted to make sure that we never made guest choices based on how famous somebody was or, you know, uh, and I, and this, this actually was a lesson I learned early on because I thought, Oh, I'm going to interview all these really well-known people. They're going to share my interviews with their like masses of followers, and then you know my my podcast will grow. And it turns out that that wasn't the case at all, which we figured out within like two months. <laughs> Such it's a humbling the, process, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and the people who made our show grow were our listeners. So at that point, it became okay. How do we make sure that we provide the most awesome content, that, you know, possible for the people who are listening? So I think that you know when you're doing something and you're writing something in an attempt to be transparent, and that's that in of itself is an oxymoron because you can't attempt to be transparent. You just are, you're not, you know? Uh, uh, the thing is that you really have to decide if the way you're being transparent is literally just a method of seeking attention or are you going to be proud that you put your signature on this thing regardless of how many likes or shares or, you know, whatever it gets. 
And, you know, that really is the creative process because, you know, for every, you know, blog post that I write that gets, you know, 50, 60,000 people viewing it, I write a five more that hardly anybody sees in comparison. And that doesn't change the fact that I'm going to write. And it doesn't change the fact that I think any less of the things that I wrote that, you know, other people didn't think as highly of. Uh, so I think that you have to to kind of see it that way as, okay, this is just one small part of a, of a much bigger picture. But ultimately, I think what it comes down to is intention and values. Like, is the intention here pure or is the way that you're doing this in alignment with your values? Or is the intention impure and completely out of alignment with your values? So true. And it's really hard to see through, especially today when we live in this age of pseudo enlightenment, you know, modern day enlightenment. I think I, I saw somewhere it means making everything about yourself and nothing about yourself. Yeah. So it's really the fine balance of writing and producing art that feeds your soul and, you know, at the same time having the effect of it pleasing others. Sure. At the same time, your new book, An Audience of One, is a contradiction in and of itself. Um, a lot of the words that you use, a lot of the stories that you tell in this book um, hone in on the theme that focusing on your creative work needs to happen just to please yourself and yeah. that you can increase your productivity and happiness solely by focusing on yourself. Is success, like quotes and the word success in quotes, is it really so black and white and that you can only focus on pleasing yourself and really tapping into who you truly are. Is, is it that black and white? I don't know that it's that black and white. So the thing that I think I am really making a case for is that if you look at you know creativity prior to the age of social media, where literally in a matter of hours we could have, you know, you can have a presence online and suddenly everybody can know who you are. There was a time when Ultimately, and, and the funny thing is, if you go and you look at the people, many of the people that mentioned the book, you look at the people who are sort of household names today, uh, there's a, a commitment to craft that I think is lost when we have access to instant validation. Now, the other thing that has happened as a byproduct of this world is that people, for some reason, like unfortunately, there's this almost underlying narrative that there is no point to doing something creative unless a million people are watching it, consuming it, or buying it. And that's really sad. Like we are missing out on so many potentially good things because what people don't realize, and this is really, I think, the point that we have to drive home here, is that often what you create in private and what you do for your own sake actually plants the seeds for your most resonant and impactful public work. So mm, I, yes, exactly. if you think about mm -hmm. it, right, like I write a thousand words every day. Do you want to know what percentage of it is usable? Like 5%. Like I, my, I, the joke that I've said is that 90% of everything I write is absolute shit. The only thing is that I write a lot. Like that's, <laughs> you know, that it's not that I'm a good writer. It's that I write a lot. That that's my, my, what I would say. Um, and occasionally I happen to write something worth reading, but that's simply because of the fact that I do this. And you know, the thing is, you look at something like a book, right? By the time, you know, you're seeing the picture on Facebook and the book cover and the bookstores, like that's in public. But the overwhelming majority of it is done in private. It, mm -hmm. You know, so if the overwhelming majority of it is done in private, then really, ultimately, you should be aiming on pleasing yourself. I'm not saying that you should neglect the audience completely. But at the same time, I think that if you set out with the intention of validation in some form or another, you're kind of doomed before you start. Because 
let's say that you don't get said validation, whatever that might be, New York Times bestseller list, however many copies sold, X number of views on Amazon, whatever it is that you've decided is this external expectation that is almost entirely determined by other people and is completely out of your control. And yet that is largely what people spend their time obsessing over. You look at podcasters, right? Like, oh, I want to optimize this thing to, to get more reviews in iTunes or whatever. And like the amount of energy they spend on all these ancillary activities, imagine what would happen if they put that same effort into the work itself. And the thing is that social media and all the tools that we have around us make it very easy to do anything but put that effort into the work itself. And that is really, I think, the case I'm making here is that you should never undervalue the, the you know creativity without a purpose is incredibly valuable because the truth is I didn't get here as a result of some grand plan. I'd always had this just ongoing habit of expressing creativity and I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon. And, you know, I mean, even Adam Grant and his own research for originals found that, you know, when they, they've done research studies, it's the people who produce the largest volume of creative output that actually end up producing the highest quality, which is so As, counterintuitive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, it, here's the mistake that I think that we make when we think about the idea of volume, right? People are like, oh, largest volume of creative output. So I have to write a hundred blog posts or I have to be Seth Godin and I have to blog every day. Well, not necessarily. You know, Seth would disagree with me on this. But it might be like one place where we disagree. But uh, <laughs> the thing is that even if you're creating in private, it doesn't matter because that is all practice for what you're going to put out in public. So that's why I think it's it's underrated to to do things for their own sake. Like, I'll give you another example, and this is kind of a not the best example because I did actually document it on Instagram. But I spent I think about a month teaching myself how to draw. This was prior to the rebrand for Unmistakable Creative, and I discovered at the end of the month that I couldn't draw. Uh, that was the conclusion I drew. But just that one little project alone fundamentally changed the way that I started to look at things. And obviously, you've seen our work. You look at our brand. The visuals are everywhere. I attribute it all to that 30 days of teaching myself how to draw. In your book, you tell the story about you know your series of failures in your 20s, how you were kind of just figuring it all out, and then you spent your 30s doing what many people did in their 20s, yeah. building the foundation of your career. It's kind of similar to what you're talking about now. It's kind of just testing things and, and really seeing how you shine and focusing in on your zone of genius. So take me back to that time in your life where you were starting from scratch, kind of from yeah. that um, point of zero return. Yeah. So, so I mean, I, I was pretty much like most people starting from scratch. And I think that that is the thing that we don't see. We, by the time you know about somebody, like keep in mind, yeah, by the time this book comes out, it'll have been 10 years uh, since we started. Wow. And yeah, so the thing that I did have in the beginning was this level of consistency. That always was there. Like I took this online course and I think part of the reason I was diligent about doing the the actual lessons in the online course, one is they came to me in you know bite-sized samples. My dad wouldn't give me all of the money to pay for the course. And I, I think that ended up being a huge blessing in disguise because I would get a lesson every Friday and I'd have a week to implement what I had just learned. And so I would implement it and I made a point of, of consistently writing like three days a week. And that you know that helped like i was in this this habit it it wasn't as solid as it was and, and we'll get to the whole thousand words a day thing in just a second but uh you know i did 13 interviews and i got some initial positive feedback keep in mind there was you know at this point people were saying podcasts were dead but the first few interviewers interviewees for some reason felt obligated to tell me that you should keep doing this uh you're good at it 
And what then trust me, I was not good at it at the time. It, even if I go back and listen to something we did two years ago, it makes me cringe. Uh, mm-hmm. So that really, so that, that's how it begins. I mean, and, and the thing is that what the one thing I think I, I would say I could attribute to this is, is that I was consistent. Uh, I always, what I saw now, here's another thing that I think uh, a lot of people don't know. And this, I still credit to this day as one of the things that's been instrumental in my ability to get better as an interviewer. So I edited every episode uh, of the podcast myself until probably about a year ago. Uh, wow. yeah. Now, what I realized after doing it for so long uh, was that because of the fact that I was editing every episode myself, I had to listen to every episode multiple times. I had to listen to it when I recorded it. I had to listen to it when I went through it for editing purposes. And then I listened to it again when we aired it. And every time I did this, I would go back and I would, I would listen. And I'm like, okay, what could we have done differently? in this episode. How could it have been better? Uh, that is something I'm always looking at. And I still do that to this day. Like I look at interviews, even if we did them a week or two ago, something in my mind would be like, all right, there, like I look constantly, I try to listen for where the threads that I didn't try to unravel where something good would have been there. Or we just didn't have time to get there because it would have taken too long. I'm always mindful of that because I don't feel that it's not about being dissatisfied with the work, but it's about constantly looking and saying, okay, if you're committed to, to mastery, which at this point, like that is where my head is at. I'm not looking to, you know, be popular on the internet. I'm looking to basically be masterful at what I do. And I want it to be of the highest quality. And I want people to recognize that, uh, that, that, that is what is happening here. <clears throat> but again, I think the, what it, what it is, is that we know from all the, the social science research that progress is incredibly motivating uh, to the human brain. Like it is the biggest motivator. And when I go back and I listen and when I compare it to something we've done a couple weeks later or even a year later, I can hear the difference. Like I know for a fact that, okay, this was something we aired this year. You know, we do this best of episodes every Friday and I listen to them and I'm always like, wow, really? Like those are stupid questions. Why did I ask those? So I think that volume is one thing. Uh, consistency is another. Consistency inevitably leads to volume, right? Mm-hmm. But then it's the willingness to go back and criticize, you know, be willing to look at your own work and say, you know what, this could be better. This is how it could be better. It's about shedding your ego and saying, you know what, this isn't the best that I can do. You know, mm-hmm. like, like even if even if somebody you know gives me the the greatest compliment at the end of an interview, I'm like, yeah, thank you. That's that's amazing. And then I go back and I still look. I'm like, what did we miss that we could have, what are the threads that we could have gone down that would have been interesting? How would I structure this differently? How could I make the story better? Uh, it's something that I, I think about constantly. I I think that the other thing that I would say that's probably unusual about me is that I see myself as an entertainer and a storyteller first. And that to me is, is sort of the critical thing that I do with anybody we interview. Is there a story? Is this going to be entertaining? So, you know, if we can entertain and educate people, that is the ideal sort of interview. But if we can only accomplish one and not the other, it's it's out of the question. So it's, you know, I think that process and quality are things that come from just, you know, repetition and, and doing the work and building habits and building schedules and, you know, doing all of these little things. So the other thing that I would say is that 
we underestimate the impact of small actions taken consistently because small actions taken consistently don't appear sexy or glamorous in the moment. But if you add them up over a month, a year, three years, five years, imagine you know something as silly as a thousand words a day, most of which is complete crap and most of which still is complete crap to this day. Uh, added up over five years leads to two books and hundreds of articles. Uh, it's, it's one of those things that when you start looking at this and say, okay, you know what? I'm not going to treat this as something that I do when I'm randomly inspired, but instead I, I'm going to treat it as something that is a priority. It's something that I schedule every day. It's something that's important enough in my life that I am going to make time for this creativity regardless of what else is going on because of what I get from it, not because of what other people get from it. Absolutely. It's so important to focus on what you can get out of that. And you really dive deeper into that in your new book, An Audience of One. Um, at the same time, I'm super curious. You say that most of your words are crap. So you wake up and you write in a moleskin journal mm-hmm. every morning. <laughs> I'm curious, what does your journal really look like? And are you like, I'm just curious, you open up the scrappiest notebook of Stranger Al. Mm. Tell me, tell me what those pages look like. I know that, um, in the well, book, The Artist's Way, you know, you're told to just write whatever comes to yeah, your mind. Do you ever look is... back and yeah, just tell me what goes on behind the scenes in, in those journals that don't ever make it out in public? Well, you know, there, I, I like the, the idea that they don't make it ever in public. I think it was Anne Lamott who said, write down all the things you swore you'd never tell anybody. Uh, you know, I, I remember Amber Ray posted a question to me in an interview. She said, she did a workshop with Cheryl, Cheryl Strayed and she said, do you tell your journal the truth? And I thought, wow, yeah, do, do we really? Um, for one thing, my journal, like the writing is illegible <laughs> like, <laughs> because my handwriting is so atrocious, which is one of the things that's frustrating because I usually I'll, I'll try to you know write three or four pages and I have to transfer it to the computer. And sometimes I can't read what I just wrote. Um, but I think that largely it is just simply the process of, of warming up and letting your thoughts flow. You know, like you're not really necessarily aiming for anything coherent. But what happens is that you get through one, two, you know, three pages. And by the time you get to like the third page, sometimes that happens sooner, but usually it's right around the third page. Suddenly you have a a sort of, you know, clarity that you didn't when you first started writing, right? Sarah Peck described this so much more eloquently than I did. We made a, a, you know, an animated short of how she described this process. But the thing that she said is, as you know, you, you kind of clear your brain a little bit, right? Like this fog clears and suddenly, you know, you'll have just this moment of, huh, that is an interesting idea. So, you know, we were, we're talking about Sherry Turkle and, and, you know, alone together. And I, you know, I started writing this morning and, and, you know, this idea came into my head. In fact, here, I'll read what I wrote. And this just happened today was one of those days where this came early. Like it came within a few minutes of sitting down, but the first thing that, I actually wrote this morning ended up kind of becoming the seed for, for this idea of, okay, so basically this was it, you know, I'd read this book a few days ago and as I was writing the insights from that book suddenly struck and I said, you know, technology has isolated us and connected us. It's provided us an opportunity to express our humanity and suppress that humanity. Digital friendships and interactions have replaced physical ones. As we've increased our ability to communicate at scale, we're slowly losing our ability to communicate with depth. And, so the thing is that another thing to to keep in mind, and this is a, a place where people struggle, is that writing without reading or attempting to do any sort of creative creative activity without some form of, of consumption of creative work is a bit like trying to cook without any ingredients. You're not going to have anything to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, and so often my early write, you know, writing is inspired by what I read, but like it, it all honesty is not particularly sexy. It's not glamorous. It's really straightforward. I read for 30 minutes and then I just, whatever comes to my mind, I write no judgment, no censorship. You know, if it's crazy, it's crazy. But it, what happens is as you go through this process, you start to suddenly have, you know, moments of clarity. And in those moments of clarity, you might get one sentence out of a thousand words that is good. But that one sentence could be the seed for a dozen other things you do. Um, you know, like it, I can, yeah. And you, you go back to sleep, you know, you go to sleep tonight and you say, okay, I remember that one thing from today and I'm going to take that. And, you know, almost all of my ideas for articles start out that way. Most of the, the concepts in my books were things that started, um, as little scribbles and ideas in my, my notebooks. I mean, that, that is, I think it was, a the, the PR director, former PR director from Moleskine said a, a notebook is like a platform for your imagination. Mm, I love that. <laughs> That's so true. So as you're using your notebook to, you know, bring to light your imagination. Um, you know, what, what really goes on? You wake up, let's, let's, let's focus on habits. Okay. So yeah, let's uh, focus on your habits. 6am you get up every morning, 6am. Is that right? Pretty much. Unless I've been drinking the night before, uh, or (laughs) been out super late, uh, -hmm. or somebody else is here, (laughs) but, but yeah, I mean, for the most part, I'm up (laughs) at 6am every single day. Um, I wake up in the morning, I meditate for 10 or 15 minutes, but so what I'll do is I'll wake up, I'll brush my teeth, I'll set the coffee maker to brew, and then I meditate for 10 minutes. And while I'm meditating, um, the, the coffee is brewing and the cool thing about doing that. So, you know, we know that basically when it comes to habits, you need a cue, you need a routine and you need a reward, right? Uh, based on the habit loop. So the thing is that waking up at 6am is the, is the cue. So I wake up and I brew the coffee, right? The routine, of course, is the meditation. The reward is that I get to have my cup of coffee when I'm done with the meditation. And it works out perfectly because it takes almost exactly that amount of time for the coffee to brew. And mm. then I sit down and I read for anywhere between 30 to 45 minutes, sometimes an hour, depending on you know what I'm reading and, and how engaging I'm finding it. Uh, after that, I write. Now, keep in mind, I actually am a big believer in not starting the day with devices. I think that we should spend more time working analog than digital. I think nearly all of the research backs up the fact that we read differently um, when we read analog. We write differently when we write by hand. All of it forces you to slow down and it, it actually gives you that sort of reflective sort of liminal space that you need to be able to think. Whereas, you know, when you're writing on a computer, when you're, you know, doing all your work, even when you're reading digitally, like if you watch how you read on a computer, you actually read much faster, like your eyes scan versus actually paying attention to the words. And so I, I find that this, to me, this is almost, in, in, in a lot of ways, I consider this part of the morning a, a, a really a, 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 an act of self-care more mm-hmm. than I do, you know, an act of creativity because I would not be happy if I didn't do it. Like, I love this. It's it's probably one of my favorite parts of the day. Like, it's probably the part of the day that I look forward to most. Mm-hmm. Um and so after that, I will turn on a computer. I will write until I hit a thousand words. If I have interviews, I will do those. But the other thing I've been doing is I've been using uh, um, the best self planner. I'm getting to the point where like I'm realizing. Th- so this is another thing you know that's worth considering when it comes to habits is that, and I've said this before. I wrote an article. Your brain is a really lousy place to store information. Your brain is used for processing information, not storing it. Like you don't want to be using your brain to remember what time a meeting is or you know that kind of stuff. So we you know putting all that stuff in calendars, but. Planning your days the night before, all you know, routines. Part of the reason we use routines, we use habits, and we use rituals is because of the fact that 
our willpower is limited in its supply. And when you wake up in the morning, if you're trying to decide what to eat, what to wear, what links to click on to Facebook, what emails to reply to, effectively, if you do all of that, you've just destroyed your willpower before you've done any real work at all. And then the creativity fades away. Yeah, absolutely. So you want to preserve your cognitive bandwidth and your willpower for the things that matter most. So automating decisions like this, you know, and getting it to the point where the routine is exactly the same every day basically allows you to take all that energy that you would have put into actually figuring out what you're going to do in the morning to actually doing that thing in the morning. Do you really practice this every day? Do you look I'm not flawless, but I would say <laughs> How that How perfect are you, Srini? <laughs> I, I would say that probably I miss maybe four or five days a year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I That's mean, a pretty... I, I missed, I missed, you know, like, so I was in Jamaica a few, few days ago for a wedding and every night I was really drunk. So as you might imagine, the last <laughs> thing on my mind waking up in the morning was to, to get up and write. Of course. Yeah. We all have those moments. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, when I'm, when I'm at home, uh, yeah, I mean, seven days a week, that's kind of the standard. That's so that wow. That's really goes to show how much those you know small um, small actions taken consistently really add up over time. That really yeah, changes that the, the chemistry in your brain. Well, that is the that's the thing, right? Is that it's not particularly time consuming to do this. You know, mm-hmm. it, you could do this in twenty minutes a day. Like you don't have to write a thousand words. You could say, okay, you know what? I'm going to write a paragraph a day. That's it. Like you commit to that. Uh, yeah, if you commit to doing the smallest, you know, one of our, our, our partners calls it a, a minimum viable action, right? Like what's the smallest thing you can do? And James Clear actually talks about this as well. He had a client, you know, one of his readers who wanted to lose weight and go to the gym regularly. He's, but he said, you know what? He's like, forget the, the goal of going, going to the gym regularly and losing weight. He said, do this. Make your goal just to drive to the gym. That's it. He's like, if yeah. you accomplish that, you know, you're successful. But what happened was as a big... That was because, in your book too. I yeah. read that part. Uh-huh. And because he, uh, he drove to the gym, he's like, oh, well, now I'm at the gym. I might as well go in. Then he would go in. He's like, well, now I'm here. I might as well work out. And, you know, and, and look, there, maybe there's days when he's like, you know what? I was like, I drove here. I'm not feeling like going in. To hell with it. So what I always tell people is do this. Commit to opening up a notebook and that's it. Like say, okay, you know, today I'm going to put this notebook on my desk and I'm going to open it up. And for the next five days, that's the only goal I have. That's it. Mm-hmm. Like if you manage to do that, you've succeeded because what you're doing at that point is you're basically wearing down the sort of resistance that you might have to doing this thing by doing the simplest step possible. And eventually you'll be like, well, I'm sitting here. I might as well write something. And mm-hmm. eventually it'll be, okay, well, I've written a sentence. Maybe I should write another one. And what will happen is that you will eventually start to build momentum. And the fact that you are, this takes us back to that whole idea of progress. So what happens when we start experiencing progress, because of the fact that visible progress is our biggest motivator, it makes it a lot easier to come back, even if that progress seems small or insignificant, the fact that it's consistently happening. So let's say that, for example, you made it your goal to just open your notebook and maybe put a drop of ink on a page. And let's say that in front of you, you have one of those don't break the chain calendars and you've done that every day for 30 days. At some point, you're going to look at that and you're going to start to see the fact that you have been showing up. And the fact that you see this chain forming will motivate you to keep coming back because we're motivated by visible progress. Mm. Yeah, these are all great tips. And it doesn't matter if you've been a writer for your entire life or you're just getting started today. I mean, we can all integrate these daily habits into our life. But one of the things that stands out is that you need the time and it seems like you've achieved time freedom. You get to write as much as you want to write every day and talk with people for a living. Um, and you've built this incredible media empire and have a team that supports you. 
Can you take us a little bit, um, can, can you take us into the inside of your company and kind of yeah. how you got to where you are today and how you built um, time abundance into your business model where you can achieve this freedom to okay. write? So I think the the real thing when it comes to time, this does take us into sort of what is probably an integral part of this book, is that almost all of our time management problems are rooted in attention management problems, uh, which I'm incredibly familiar with because I have a super short attention span. I have to work like this because if I didn't, I wouldn't get a damn thing done. So that is something that I think, you know, if people really sat down and they said, you know, I'm going to audit how I spend my time for a day, like just be, you know, ruthlessly honest with yourself about, you know, where you screwed up. I'll admit it. Today was kind of a shit day in terms of productivity. Even though I did two interviews and I wrote a blog post, I, I was looking at my rescue time productivity pulse. I'm like, all right, fair enough. I get a 67%, probably because I checked email way too many times because I've been emailing my publicist for for stuff that I need. But I could have done all of that in 10 minutes. Today was one of those days where I was like, all right, you know, lost cause. Like, it's not going to happen. But, you know, and, and you're going to have days like that, and that's okay. But, the thing is that if you can say, okay, you know what, let me be ruthlessly honest with myself. How much time am I really spending every day on Facebook? Um, I, I don't remember, you know, I think it was a Trevor Noah quote, right? Where I got to find that. It was one of the funniest things that I ever said. Um, he, he basically said, you know, you over the course of a year between, you know, this is, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, between tweets, status updates, and, you know, whatever else, he said, you've read the equivalent of a ton of books, a shit ton of books, you know, but he said, but in reality, you've actually read no books. <laughs> mm, yeah. And, and, and that's true. Like you think about that and you're like, oh, yeah. I mean, if you think about all the things that you read over the course of a week, just on the internet, probably you've read the equivalent of a book. So I think we have to think about this, not just from a time standpoint, but from an attention standpoint, like how are we actually managing our attention? Because what will happen is that if you can work with intensity of focus for very for for even an hour that hour will be worth more than 3 or 4 hours of the rest of the day combined that's why i value my morning so much because i know that's when i am sort of cognitively at my peak like that is when i'm really really in the zone and so you know we look at time freedom as this thing that seems so unachievable and yet when we look at how we're spending our time it becomes very abundantly clear that our issue really more than anything especially in a world with so many distractions is much more an attention issue than it is a time issue so that i think before you know i'll, I'll answer your question uh, about the business itself but i think we need to preface it with that uh, people don't suck at managing their time they're terrible at managing their attention and that will solve so many problems for them if they can do that uh, Agree. Yeah, that's a that's a really strong point to make, and it always comes back to where is your attention going. So yeah, the, thanks for honing in on that yeah. so wisely. So as far as sort of how we built this, um, it's happened very organically. It's not the kind of plan I would recommend to anyone. It's not what I would ever use as a blueprint to build a business uh, <laughs> because it, it's had its ups and downs. You know, there were periods and you know where we thought we weren't going to be around. So I've been really lucky in that. One, I started as early as I did. Uh, that I, I, I can't deny the fact that we just happened to be, you know, ten years ahead of the curve on a trend that got hot, like in the last year or two. Mm -hmm. But that being said, I was really fortunate in that I had partners who 
wanted to help. And each one of them brought something to me that was valuable. You know, my, my first partner said, Savara, I didn't know anything about how to even build a website, but he was the one who had the foresight. It was in all honesty, he deserves credit for the idea. It was his idea that we take this. I had, it started out as interviews with up and coming bloggers. And he said, I think you should spin it out into a separate site. And that was how it started. So he deserves a lot of credit for the idea. He's, he actually fed, you know, sort of the, the guest roster initially because he was a, he had a popular blog and he was well connected to enough people. And, you know, bit by bit, it, it slowly built. But along the way, I kept meeting people. Um, there were other partners uh, who, who, you know, had an important impact. Like, you know, one of the partners I worked with, things didn't work out with him. But I learned a lot about design and visuals and typography, all of which largely informed how I, how I, like, I can't design stuff, but I can tell people how to do stuff now. And I think largely I learned that from watching him. So he, it's not like he didn't leave me something incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Delegation is key. Yeah. And then I, I had another, I had a mentor who uh, was actually a guest from Unmistakable Creative. And he came to me, I think, partway through uh, his own journey. And he said, Hey, I, I'm going to self publish a book and you've published a book. I, I want your help. And so we got to talking more and more. And eventually I ended up helping him less and he ended up helping me a lot more. And so he ended up coming on as an equity holder. He was largely responsible for you know having the foresight to rebrand the show as Unmistakable Creative. Um, he helped me plan an event that we did, uh, you know, 60, 60 attendees, nine speakers, uh, and, you know, really cool event that was a, a blast to do. And, you know, and he was also really sick. Uh, when we started working together, he got diagnosed with a terminal illness, like right at the beginning of our, our working together. And, you know, with time, we kind of, we kind of outgrew each other. We knew that, I knew that he couldn't be around forever. And, and we knew that we were kind of reaching a point where they Things had to change, and that was actually, believe it or not, the lowest point of, of the business where we thought we weren't going to be around. And I'd met this guy uh, who had been one of the readers of my book named Brian, and he emailed me one day to go surf. And it turned out that Brian had you know built a skateboard company out of his parents' garage while he was in high school. And he was at this interesting career point because he was, you know, he was starting to get sort of to the point of being recognized for this work at his job, but he, he didn't want to have a job per se. And so he actually offered, you know, I, 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 he was somehow just there and we'd be, keep in mind, we were friends for about a year. We surfed together all the time and, you know, I knew that he was business savvy. And so we got together and literally what we did was we engineered a turnaround that took probably the better part of 14 months. And, you know, that was a really ugly period in which I found myself back with my parents. We were literally every day, we, every weekend we'd go through bank statements and look at, you know, what are we spending money on and what do we cut? Like that is the beginning of a turnaround and, you know, what's unnecessary. Shortly after that, I got the book deal. Uh, but I think the the thing that really this takes us into is another component of the book, which is probably more useful for your listeners than my story itself, in that nothing of great significance is achieved without the help of other people. Uh, like if you look at the the people that I've surrounded myself with, like I've been lucky to have amazing artists that we work with, people like Mars Dorian, um, who who's had an incredible impact on the visual aesthetic of the unmistakable brand. Like he and I have probably had one of the best collaborations of, of my life and something that I've, you know, we've worked together for five years and never met each other in person. He's in and, Germany, right? Yeah. I, lo- I love Mars. <laughs> he's, great. He's, he's really funny and, and, you know, we get along great. And so it, it's really interesting that we've had this really amazing collaboration, but you know, I think the ability to see that, okay, wait a minute, I can't do this thing that I have an idea for, but by partnering with other people, that very thing that I can't do can be brought to life. Mm. And so, you know, you have 
people with different skill sets. So, you know, we have a copywriter and a content strategist who oversees product launches and writes emails and all of that. And he's really good at that. Like he's very good at it. And so, you know, I mean, I think for me at the core, what I realized was that I'm a really good storyteller. Um, I'm a good creator. Now, keep in mind, as we've evolved, like now I'm finding myself in the role of CEO because Brian decided to take on another job. And, you know, it just he found an opportunity that he couldn't say no to. And I, I, I didn't blame him for that. You know, he's like, but he's still he's played an instrumental role in us getting to where we're at. And so I'm learning how to be CEO. I mean, that's that's really largely been a lot of what this year has been. It's learning how to manage people, learning to figure out what works, learning to, you know, like make choices. The thing that I think really trips people up is they, you know, this goes back to that the whole time idea and attention idea. And people pay attention to thousands of small things. And as a result, they can't do any of the big things. Um, Whereas for me, I kind of know that there are literally only a handful of objectives. Like when I'm working on a book, what's beautiful is that there's nothing other than getting the book done that's important. I think the biggest thing that we have uh, an issue with when it comes to this is a lack of clarity. And, you know, clarity amplifies progress. Like it basically excel- helps you accelerate progress. So if you know exactly what you're going to do and how you're going to spend your time, then you don't need as much of your time. So that's a big part of it. I think that, you know, if you were to even go into the working world, I don't know. I don't, I don't buy the fact that everybody works truly 40 hours a week. I totally agree. It's really what you choose to focus on, having the discipline and the fortitude to stick through with what you're truly good at. And Srini, your consistent theme throughout your work is just you're unmistakable. But as you mentioned previously in your last answer, you really just bring in everybody around you to just make your work rise above. Um, it's really distinctive and it's immediately recognized as yours. Do you regard your work as unmistakable? And if so, how do you feel that your work stands apart? Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, given that that is the ethos of the brand. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Not to I get think, too meta or anything. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that that was you know, largely a deliberate choice because what I started to see very quickly was, wow, this is about to get a whole hell of a lot noisier. Like mm-hmm. we're getting noisier and noisier and... I, I think the thing that we did probably that flies in the face of all conventional wisdom is the fact that we ignored all conventional wisdom. Yeah, we didn't look at what other people were doing. We didn't look at, at one of the big mistakes we made. I remember, I remember this process very distinctly. We're like looking, you know, me and my business partner, one of my mentors at the time, uh, you know, we're looking about you know how do other people do their about pages, and we're like, why the hell are we looking at how other people do their about pages? And I, I think that our willingness to ignore that and say, you know what, we're going to create stuff that we want to put our fingerprints on and we think is awesome. And I think the, the thing that, the thing that I think has been really where we've been lucky in, in terms of being able to accomplish the sort of unmistakable signature is like you said, I have benefited from the perspective of hundreds of people. And as a result, I've learned from them, but I've learned to take what I like from them and, and use what they've given me as ingredients and create recipes of my own is the way I would think of it. And so that to me is really how we get to this ethos of unmistakable is, you know, borrowing from different art forms, borrowing from different elements. I mean, I think my love for movies and entertainment is largely driven this sense of everything we do. If you look at any ebook we put out or anything, right, we have this free ebook called The Compass, you know, and when you see it, the first thing it says is an unmistakable creative production. And you know, like for a free ebook, that's ludicrous to even think of it that way. Like nobody mm-hmm. would say, why would you call this a production? It's a fucking ebook. But to mm-hmm. me, I want it to feel that way. I think that 
what I am always after is what is the experience that I can create for the person who comes in contact with this? That to me is really what's exciting. And I think that that informs everything that I do. I love it. An audience of one is out in bookstores. Um, and where can, I'm sorry, let me start that over. <laughs> where can um, listeners find you and your work online, Srini? Absolutely. So um, they can find me at unmistakablecreative.com and I'll put together a, a resources page with some free ebooks and some assessments and you know things that they can, tools from some of the things we've talked about if they just go to unmistakablecreative.com slash humanity. Nice. And uh, your book, An Audience of One, is available online and in bookstores? It, yep, absolutely. Amazon, bookstores, wherever. Pretty much anywhere books are sold. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me, Srini. Yeah, my pleasure. You made it to the end of the podcast. This means the world to me. I hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to hop on over to my podcast website, artofhumanity.io, for show notes or past interviews. Or you can message me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My name is Jessica Ann, and my handle is It's Jessica Ann. It starts with an I. I T S J E S S I C A N N. I'd love to hear from you and learn more about what you've learned from this episode, and I'll be sure to get in touch with you. If you really love this podcast, I'd highly appreciate it if you went on iTunes right now and left a review. It helps way more than you know. Let's get the Art of Humanity movement going. Thank you so much for listening. Until the next episode, evolve your business with the art of humanity. Listen, explore, evolve.